Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. I want to start today's episode with a quote that has traditionally been attributed to a 19th century British philosopher named Herbert Spencer, but likely has its derivation from writings of a 18th century British theologian named William Paley. And the quote is, there is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. He and I discussed on an episode called The Not-So-Great Reset, uh, this globalist movement, this move to a new world order, and the organization that's really behind it, which is the World Economic Forum. We spent some time talking about the role of global corporations, particularly those in the finance industry, and he tried to address a concern I've had since I really started to understand this, which is why financial companies that exist ostensibly to help my clients and everybody else build wealth would be connected to an organization who has a mission that we own nothing by 2030 and we're happy, that we rent everything we need and it's delivered by drones, and that you know we eat bugs and we are tracked in pretty much all aspects of our daily life. And so I want to start this episode today with uh, just a follow-up on that. And I want to illustrate something to you. And I'm going to ask those of you who are listening, um, if you want later, you can go to YouTube channel, which is Upthinking Finance. But I'm going to share with you and just my screen. And I want to show everybody something who's watching, illustrate the point. And this is to just explain to you just how deep these globalist companies are in terms of their influence in our economy. Now, I just pulled up Exxon Mobil stock. And I want to say that all I'm doing is illustrating points here. I'm not making recommendations. This isn't applicable to anything other than me to illustrate a point. Now, you go to the holders and what this will show you is who owns the company stock. And you can see Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street are the top three owners of Exxon Mobil stock. And they control 20% of the voting rights because they own 20% of the publicly traded stock. This is important because, as you may recall, Dr. Rechtenwald talked about this ESG, which is kind of a a forced compliance with the objectives and philosophy of the World Economic Forum. Let's try another one. Let's go to Starbucks, a company everybody's familiar with for one reason or another. We go to holders of the stock, and once again, about close to 20% of the stock is owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. And you can see a few other World Economic Forum uh, supporters are here in the top part of the list, Bank of America, Royal Bank of Canada, and Morgan Stanley. Let's try one more. How about um, Procter & Gamble? That's a company that uh, provides a lot of you know household things uh, that we use on a day-to-day basis. And once again, no surprise, you know, again, 20% of the stock controlled by Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, Morgan Stanley in there again, and JP Morgan, which is another company that's affiliated with this movement. So the reason why I bring this up is because it's clearly not our imagination what's going on. These companies control the stock of a number of publicly traded companies and because of that have the ability to influence how they run their business, who they include on their board, uh, a lot of things. So 
this is important because you could look at this and think, well, how do you unwind something like this? And, you know, how do we stand a chance, you know, to have a free market system when these companies have this kind of influence? Well, today's guest I've invited on mainly because he believes that the Davos crowd, which is what he calls the World Economic Forum group and all the elites and political people that are associated with it, he believes they're losing the battle. So today's guest, his name is Tom Luongo. He's a former research chemist. He's an amateur dairy goat farmer. And as he refers to himself, he's an anarcho-libertarian and obstreperous Austrian economist. His work is can be found in a lot of places. It's published on Zero Hedge. LouRockwell.com, Bitcoin Magazine, and Newmax, uh, I'm sorry, Newsmax Media. He also is the owner and publisher of the Gold, Goats, and Guns newsletter and podcast. And here he have, provides a forum where he attempts to connect the false narrative that is uh, typically tied to geopolitical events and tries to develop them into a viable long-term investment theses. Uh, he lives in Florida with his wife of 30 years and his teenage daughter. In a world where many independent journalists are emerging as the only reliable source of unbiased information, for me, Tom Luongo stands out not only for his knowledge and analysis of geopolitical events, but really for his ability to communicate this in a very simple and understandable way. So it's my pleasure to introduce live from Florida, Mr. Tom Luongo. Tom, thanks for joining me today on Upthinking Finance. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, we do have a couple things in common. I know I read somewhere you're a big hockey fan. Can I ask you who you follow? I used to be a big hockey fan. I now just don't have time for it anymore, but I'm a long-suffering Buffalo Sabres fan. So I used to actually write a Sabres blog in the before time, uh, right after the lockout. And I actually worked for AOL as a fan house for a while back in like 2008, 2009, when sports blogging became a, really became a thing back then. I was there as along with a, a bunch of other guys. We were kind of the first generation hockey bloggers. So, and we all got picked up by LL and, and, uh, tried to do it professionally. And then we all went, there's no money in this. And we left and we went and got real jobs. So uh, not enough time for hockey. Well, you know, it might be a good time to pick up Buffalo starting to look like they may be turning the corner. So, well, let's see, you know, they've been trying to turn the corner. I, I keep my, my hand in it. I, I look every year and I'm like, well, yeah, no, the front office is a mess. Since they got rid of Darcy Brazier, the front office has been a mess. So I'm I'm a blues fan and uh it's no, that's fun. fine. Like, yeah. I don't mind I don't mind the blues. I don't hate them, so that's fine. And then the other thing is we have a mutual friend in Alex Craner, which we were talking mm. about earlier. And, and for the listeners, I this is a, re- a new endeavor for me. Alex was my first interview, and he was also Tom's first interview when he started his podcast. So we have a good foundation to build on. Let me start with this. I became aware of this globalist movement, I'm going to call it, in the, the World Economic Forum probably a couple of years ago. And to me, I, I've really looked at the global financial structure as, as the, you know, that's my focus of where to put some blame, uh, you know, because I can't get past this idea that, you know, these big companies that are supposed to be helping people accumulate wealth are basically connected to an organization who wants everybody to own nothing. It doesn't, you know, make sense to me. So, but in listening to the talk you just gave at the uh, Ron Paul Institute, you know, last month, sounds like I may be looking at, as I think you put it, one side of the, the, the board. And, and I, I guess I'd like to start by saying if there's somebody that we can, something or someone we can look at as the enemy, who would that be if that even exists? I identified it in that talk, and I've, I've I've worked on this idea for years. It's really the Davos meme is really mine. I, I started calling them Davos like five years ago, and it just kind of kept creeping slowly. And now I see Laura Ingraham use the term Davos on Fox News. I'm like, oh, okay, her staff reads my work. Got it. Which is good. I don't care about the credit or anything along those lines. I just know that if you see truth into the zeitgeist, 
it tends to propagate, right? So we'll start there. And the problem with Davos as a concept is that it was easy to identify who the globalists were back in 2015 or 2016. Watching them coalesce around all hating Donald Trump or all being against Brexit, it was easy. And it was on both sides of the Atlantic. It was on all sides of the political spectrum here in the United States. It was all over Europe. Any populist movement, right, that sprung up in Hungary or France or Italy or the UK or the United States was immediately branded far right, was immediately branded as persona non grata in polite society, for lack of a better term. And this mostly comes from, I've identified, it comes from the people centered around the World Economic Forum, around Davos. And I mean, it's bigger than that. It's more ancient than that. It goes all the way back to the Bank of England and, and the rest of it. But for today's purposes, right, it really does center on the old European colonialist interests who control the European banking system and the city of London banking system. Now, that's been co-opted for years. We had the American banking system working along with them. Everybody was on board with the globalist plan to extract wealth from the world while that system was solvent. So JP Morgan went along with it. Colton Sachs went along with it. Everybody here in the United States went along with it. That system broke in 2008 when Lehman Brothers fell. The dollar reserve standard broke in 2008. I didn't identify it then at the time. I've only identified it in hindsight recently that I think that the end of the dollar reserve standard happened when Lehman Brothers broke. And then we had a period of what we call this coordinated central bank era of monetary policy. I remember you, you and Alex were talking about this. And I guess that's the question because my thought, and I imagine most people that have enough awareness of this to just be dangerous, I suppose, Mm -hmm. is you've got the good guys and the bad guys. And I know that that's, it's very blurry. Yeah, no, it's very blurry. And so my take was from your conversation that, you know, the Davos crowd, as you'd call them, um, is actually losing this battle. I think so. Everybody's going along, lowering rates globally from, like you said, 2011. Is it just simply, again, as a financial advisor looking at this stuff, that they, the rates just got too low and eventually you have nowhere else to go? I mean, the ECB destroyed, as Martin Armstrong has pointed out many, many times, the ECB destroyed the euro as potential reserve currency replacement for the dollar by going to negative interest rates, right? No one wants to, who the hell wants to hold European sovereign debt at minus 0.8%? Nobody. Now we have a a situation where they, but they had that, they had to go there because the European banks were structurally unsound, right? But they were able to get away with it because they had a compliant Fed who was feeding money through ZERP. And and the carry trades were feeding that into everybody to allow for the ECB to get away with all this for years. And the Bank of Japan and even the SNB, who then over the course of the last 15 years has turned into the world's largest equity hedge fund. So are you saying that Powell, because to me, he's just a part of the government, which is a part of the problem. I mean, effectively. It's a nice and simple way of looking at things, but it's not that way. Okay, so so this is what I want to ask you to explain to me what's going on, because I see that these articles, there was something written, I think, yesterday that, you know, if you put us into recession, you know, know, it's going to be your fault, Powell. That's the current Davos meme of the day. As a matter of fact, that's the blog post I'm literally writing right now. None dare call it a recession, lest the Democrats lose the midterms. Like literally, it should be out this afternoon. Certainly, by the time this this interview posts, so then now they're trying to re- redefine recessions and everything else. It's just hilarious watching them do this, personally. But here's the thing: what Davos wants is a way to repudiate all of the debt 
and all of the broken promises of all of the social safety nets that have been put into place over the last 75 years. Europe is broke. Their banks are broke. Their governments are broke. They can't pay their pensions. They can't pay any of this stuff. We're technically broke here in the United States for many of the same reasons. Everybody within kind of alternative crank finance space has been saying this for years. Anybody who reads Zero Hedge, even remotely sympathetically, understands the the structure of the argument. It's not particularly difficult. If you have any experience with Austro-Libertarian thinking on these matters, even if you're just not quite down with the Keynesianism, like even if you, even Keynesianism has failed, right? Even Keynes is rolling over in his grave as to what we're doing at this point, right? But here's the thing. All of that was fine as long as you were going to have a perpetuation of the current commercial, some form of the commercial banking system. This is the problem. Central bank digital currencies obviate the need for central banks. Now, everybody, as opposed to having accounts at PNC and JP Morgan or any of your regional banks or your local credit union or whatever, right? All of those, they don't need to exist anymore because people can just go directly to the central bank to get their loan or not get their loan, not get their money because, well, they ate a pizza the other night and, you know, you're fat and you don't deserve to get a car loan now because, you know, well, we don't like cars. So this week we don't like cars. So you're not allowed to get a car loan. And then next week you're not going to be able to order pizza because you're fat. The social credit score is real. Christine Lagarde has talked about this in explicit terms when she was the head of the IMF, before she was installed by Klaus Schwab to be the head of the ECB, after she after he moved Mario Draghi out of the ECB and into the prime ministership over in Italy. Change of seats. I've noticed that too. Yeah, no, this is very important. This is why last year I said, hey, when they decide to get rid of Biden, they're going to put Janet Yellen in as president. You know, why not? Because, you know, it just fits the MO. Right. If your goal is to do away with the central banks, Institute world government through the UN and have the IMF be the world central bank. Because the IMF, as Jim Rickards has told us for years, putting this together, that when the central banks go bust, only the IMF will have the capital to bail everybody out. So that's been the plan. Now, whether you think Jim is compromised anyway, because he does work with the CIA and DOD on, on, you know, whatnot, or whether he's telling us a version of the truth, which is where I tend to fall on on, with Jim. I think he likes to tell us about 75% of the truth. If you parse all that together, it's pretty obvious that the goal here is exactly that. Now, if you're the New York boys, you're Goldman, you're Morgan, you're Citigroup, you're Wells, and you're the shareholders in the New York Federal Reserve, are you going to go along with this? Basically, if I'm getting this right, one thing is you're saying that these big wealth management firms that I've personally tried to avoid to the extent you can just on basis of principle alone. Sure are on the partner list on the World Economic Forum site by name only. That The evidence that this thing is failing is just what you described, that there's, they're realizing that they're tied to this organization that at some point maybe they were going to be a part of in some kind of global distribution channel, whatever. They're realizing they're getting cut out. Is that a fair way? Yeah, to- I think I just think it's like everything else. Like At some point, we're all hockey fans, right? What cares all problems in the room? Winning. What happens when they start losing? Now, the fingers start getting pointed. Now what happens when one group attempts to predate the other group? Every cartel is metastable. Like this is a classic free market, basic classic free market analysis of cartel or the cartelization of a market. At some point, the cartel breaks down because the cartel's rules don't work for some individual members. And therefore, at some point, they will go along with it for as long as they, as long as it is um, not existential to their, their future. Like, Leaving the cartel is existential because the cartel will come down on them like a ton of bricks and destroy them, 
right? But there comes a point when the cartel is now weak enough that one can break away and then collapse the cartel. Well, if we had a cartel of central banks all happily coordinating and one of them, the most powerful one in the world, who was the one getting the most screwed by the globalist policy, who was the one who they were using Austro-libertarians like ourselves as the main gadflies to explain why the Fed is the bad guy. I sometimes I love Dr. Paul like with a purple passion. He's a is an immense figure in American history. But and the Fed, while a great piece of marketing, is also very dangerous because it's now been used to co-opt to make the Fed the villain for the entire world. When Europe is over there sitting there going, we want our colonies back and we control Fed policy and we can make them look like the bad guys. We can have them bail out everybody, print all this money, and then allow all the first order gold bugs and hard money analysts to go, yeah, see, the Fed's terrible. And then stop because they think they've unlocked the keys to the candy store. They they think they have the Rosetta Stone to global politics and global economics. And they don't. It's far more complicated than that. And I used to be one of these people. Like it was easy. Like the world was so much easier when it was just, hey, just buy gold and and wait these people out. But it's not that simple. When the time horizon here is, oh, what? We're going to have to wait till 2040 for me to finally get paid in my gold positions? Like I'm going to be dead by then. (laughs) It was one thing to do this stuff when I was just some dude. But the minute I got hired by Newsmax to write a financial newsletter on the monthly basis, and I had to give people good advice, Like the thesis started to break down really quickly for me. And I, I within about a year, 18 months or so, I ran into a real, right in the middle of, this is 2013 to 2015, I'm running into a real problem because I'm like, this isn't making any sense. I'm wrong. Now, how do I extricate myself from this? And where am I going to become right? And that's when I had to start embracing arguments about, no, the dollar is going to strengthen at some point. Europe is the problem. I have criticisms like we all do of the American system, but we have to give that up and go, is that really the only discussion? This is why I get angry with my compatriots in geopolitics. They're all you know, fervently anti-American to the point of losing their reason. And I'm like, no, Europe is the problem. They've always been the problem. They've always been the issue. They've always been the people behind the wars and the central bank policy and everything else. Because guess what? They're colonialists and they're commies. It's not hard. Communism is a European idea, as Putin reminded us six, you know, six months ago at the beginning of the year at a speech at Valdai. Mm-hmm. Like, and you people exported it to us and nearly destroyed it with us, and we don't want it again. You guys have fun with that. That's a bit of a minority view, though. I mean, it's I, very minority view. I, I was say that was one of the things that drew me to you. Is like, I, you know, this is a whole new take I haven't really heard. Right, resonates. So now, on the subject of Europe, in some of your writings, you you've mentioned that basically they see there's evidence that they're starting to fall apart, I guess, you know, simple way of me putting it. But then if you're looking, you know, but then another way I look at this, I say, okay, you know, what's his name? Uh, Merkel's gone, but you got this Schultz guy back in who's just another, you know, world. Schultz is a, Schultz is a captured pawn. He's he's a captured pawn of the Greens. The Greens that were put in power in Germany, they actually run the German government. Got this Rishi Sunak, who looks to be the heir apparent for Johnson, who is another world economic form minion. So to me, it's just okay, out with the old, in with the new. So could you really elaborate, because oh, yeah. I think you have a great handle on this, of, of where to look to see. Yeah, now this is this is complicated. Like as the Russians very smartly realized that the war in Ukraine was going to turn into a war of attrition, the question of whose war and whose attrition. 
we seriously underestimated Russia's financial and economic prowess by just looking at raw GDP numbers and thinking, oh, well, they have the they have the GDP of Canada. Well, that's nice. In purchasing power parity terms, they have the GDP that's greater than Germany's. When you look at the structure of the Russian economy, when you break it down by production and services, it's more of a production economy than a service economy. So they produce a whole lot. Their GDP actually makes things, you know, like bullets and bombs and you know, rockets and oil and gas and tarmac and copper and titanium and wheat and pigs and fish and all the rest of this stuff, right? Whereas we produce financialization. We make money on money. How much of our economy, I've, I've been saying this for years, how much of our economy is actually a froth based on the size of the credit markets and how much of Europe's is a function of the offshore euro dollar shadow banking system? Ooh, that's a big one. Do you remember that article right after these sanctions? It was on Zero Hedge, and, and I honestly had no idea, but they put out what the impact was going to be Russia brought to the world economy. Because you never, I mean, I, at least I'll say, I, I you know. Never thought of it. You don't think about Russia. I did. Player. Okay, I, I know. You I, I've been doing this for 10 years, Emerson. Like, yeah. that's serious. I, I first put Gazprom in my portfolio for my newsletter in 2014. Well, okay, so remember, I'm a guy <laughs> influenced by all the, the usual names over the years, and you know, took what they said as some kind of gospel. And so that was a big revelation. I mean, you see this fertilizer and all this other stuff. You're talking fertilizer, about. titanium. I, I wrote an article back in 2017 saying the Russians have, when the first round, next round of sanctions went through, I said, Russia has the sanctions hammer. They own the controlling share of the entire uranium upstream through downstream market. Mm. FYI. Like they build more nuclear power plants than everybody between their relationship with Kazakhstan. They produce more yellow cake than everybody else. And they process upwards of 50% of the world's uranium from U-308 into usable fuel. Do the math and the Russians control the uranium market. If the Russian economy produces, you know, three in purchasing power parity dollars, $3 trillion a year worth of stuff people want, as opposed to the $1.7 trillion in depreciated rubles, which were held way lower than they needed to be because of sanctions. The ruble trading in the 70s was like, it was retarded, frankly. I, am, I know I'm not supposed to use that word, but I'm sorry, it was. At $100 a barrel oil to see the Russian ruble trading in the 70s was just dumb, but because it should have been trading back in the 40s or the 50s, like it was previous to the 2014 ruble crisis. When oil was $125 a barrel, the ruble was trading at 32 to the dollar. People forget this. And then it hit 80 when the price of oil crashed in late 2014. When Putin allowed the, the ruble to free float, you know, I said then, I said, oh, they're going to survive this. The, the ruble is going to free float. They'll be fine. They're going to pay all their bills in, in rubles and, you know, they don't care. And now they can truly express their cost of production, which is around $9 a barrel. FYI, out of the ground, nine bucks a barrel. Compared to what? Like 30 over here? Is that what? Oh, like 50. Okay. And for budgetary reasons, because the Saudis have the real pegged to the dollar and their budget, now the Saudis need $80 a barrel or $70 a barrel. MBS is trying to get a, Mohammed bin Salman is trying desperately to get them out of that. It's what Vision 2040 plan and all that stuff he's talking about, modernizing the Saudi economy is all about. But back then, the Saudis tried to, you know, we're working with the Americans to basically take market share from the Russians and it didn't work. And then eventually the Saudis had to go and sue for peace allow Russia into OPEC as a part of OPEC plus, and now Russia and the Saudi Arabians control the price of oil, marginal price of oil and the and OPEC's production quotas. And OPEC is stronger today than it ever was 
because all the oil producers understand that Davos, Europe, the West, however you want to put it, is now hostile to the concept of oil, thanks to global warming. So you now you look at, so what are they trying to do? They're trying to decarbonize the economy. Well, they're actually trying to decarbonize the world by getting rid of humans, but that's a tangential issue. Let's just, just like look at the situation. So, but when you understand this is the totality of their plan. And so at the end of the day, even if you have a very dim view of people like Jamie Dimon and, you know, I, I can, it's John Solomon, I think is the head of, uh, is the CEO over, over Goldman now. So I Larry think that's his name. What's that? Larry Fink. No, Larry Fink. No, Larry Fink is a different, he's in Davos crap. Okay. Larry Fink is pure Davos. But if you look at the guys within, I've identified having talked to some market professionals and just watched their their statements and whatnot over the course of the last couple of years. It's Jamie Dimon over at J.P. Morgan, Goldman, Wells, and Citigroup are all off the Davos train. Bank of New York Mellon on the Davos train. Morgan Mm -hmm. Stanley on the Davos train, right? Who's the other one that I'm missing? Uh, The big, the uh, BOFA, definitely on the Davos train. Everybody who showed up for Davos this year. Brian Moynihan, Larry Fink, all those guys showed up at Davos at Davos 2022 this year to listen to George Soros tell everybody that we need to enter into a holy war against the Russians and the Chinese for the liberal world order. Just keeping it as simple as we can, Morgan, Goldman, or JP Morgan, Goldman, Citigroup, and Wells off the Davos train. And then the regional commercial banks are not interested in any of this either, because guess who also gets screwed? So who's the most powerful political lobby in the world. Not Davos. Not anymore. It's the U.S. commercial banking interests. Okay. Period. And it's centered around the big banks. They're the ones that decide who gets elected, who gets the money, blah, 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 who gets the loans. Look, they're the ones that that are one degree of separation from the Federal Reserve Board. So they're the most powerful lobby in the world. They're the ones that actually control the purse strings for the military industrial complex and everything else. Let's not mince words here. So. They're not going to go gently into that good night. I I just don't buy it. And I also don't buy that while these guys may be corrupt and they may may be corporatists, like they want want an unlevel playing field in in their favor, they still believe that the best way to, to generating wealth is through capitalism, not communism. At some point, everybody has to take a step back and go, where are we going here? Are we really going to do this? Because these people, if they get in charge, are going to make life unlivable for everybody, including me, including us, including my families and the people that I employ and all of that stuff. And when you get to that point, you know, these people are talking about making sure that we all eat bugs, that we're not allowed to drive cars. We're not allowed to do any of this stuff. And I'm like, I can't see Jamie Dimon, by the way, one of the most disagreeable Greeks I've ever watched and i know a lot of disagreeable greeks who by the way there's no love loss between greeks and germans and i just don't see diamond of all people handing over the keys to the the global candy store to a bunch of german eugenicists i just don't see it and klaus schwab is a german eugenicist and of nazi heritage these guys are just the more you dig into these people the creepier and the weirder and the the uglier and more venal and disgusting they become and i don't even dig that deeply anymore because i don't want to know i've got enough information (laughs) you've heard of c.s lewis right oh yeah okay the the screw tape letters Mm -hmm. i I was thinking about i don't know how i got on this but i was thinking and, and at the end there you know, after uh, the, the protege, you know, Wormwood lets the soul get away, 
and you know screw tapes giving him his last final instruction or you know commentary all the while basically telling him you know i'm going to be consuming you and i was thinking this is the mistake you just identified is that when you're dealing with evil evil is never satisfied and so these people that have been going along with this thinking that somehow they're going to be one of the chosen few right yeah it starts to fall apart well because the people like schwab don't believe in anything they don't want to die either. They're afraid to die. That's why they believe in transhumanism. That's why they believe in this idea that they're going to upload their consciousness into into people's bodies, or they're going to drink adrenochrome until they like. You can believe as much of the stuff as you want. I don't really care, right? They're emotional vampires. They're emotionally stunted, emotional vampires who refuse to accept their own mortality and look in the mirror and say, "Maybe I'm the carbon that needs to be reduced." So let me tie up the Europe thing in a, in a real sure. simple bag, if I'm understanding right. Effectively. As you said, that some people are getting off the reservation. If I'm reading between the lines right, your take is that these banks are effectively pulling Powell's strings at this point. Is that am I well? I mean, he. I think he was put in power by these people. Okay. During the Trump administration to affect this plan, and I think the big one. I think the big tell, and it's something I didn't realize until about six or eight months ago. You know, I'm not like going to sit here and claim that I understood all this stuff five years ago because I didn't. But I had a patron literally ping me one day and say. Dude, I want to talk to you about something and put an idea in your head. And he started to explain, I hadn't really thought about the implications of the secured overnight funding rate and how that would decouple us from LIBOR and how that would, mm. that if the Fed were to raise interest rates and the euro dollar markets were to get cold, that now the Federal Reserve, now the US banking system is insulated from any blowouts in LIBOR. Ending LIBOR, you should know as well as I do, who sits on the board of LIBOR. 17 European banks and JP Morgan's London office, any American interest expressed in the LIBOR. And I'd make a, a wise crack, and I wouldn't be wrong to say that this is how the Brits have always kept control over us. Because since the day this constitution was signed, or the day that, that Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, that they've been trying to undermine the colonies and get them back. And so the British have always infiltrated our government. They have always kept control over our banks. And they've always, and this is why Brexit was so dangerous, because now Davos didn't have control over City of London. And now City of London may actually have to answer to the Americans. You know, reforming the special relationship between the US and the UK on a geopolitical front to then make Europe again subordinate to the US and the UK, that was the big threat to them. So, of course, why do you think they took down Boris Johnson? Why are they trying to push in Rishi Sunak? Why is the US trying to push, unfortunately, that PhD in geography, Liz Truss, who's literally not even an IQ 105 midwit, who's literally the dumbest person I've seen in politics outside of AOC. I mean, and she's a special kind of stupid because she's British and stupid. So that means she's arrogant about this. So I don't mince words when it comes to these people because uh, at no. this at this level, there's no point. It's not because I don't care. I don't because they're trying to destroy the world. They're trying to get us involved in a freaking nuclear war with the Russians. And I'm sorry, I'm going to insult people. <laughs> you know, like, oh, sue me, fight me, bro. I don't care. So seriously, like we got bigger worries here about whether or not the, uh, whether Liz Truss is going to be angry with me for, you know, calling her arrogant and British. Like I care. So when you stop to think about this, Powell and the Fed and SOFR and all of this stuff was the mechanism by which to allow the Fed to finally break 
the American banking system from the British, from the European banking system. Moreover, go back to 2019, go back to the repo crisis. Zero Hedge ran article after article after article saying, why is JP Morgan trying to crash the bond market? Do you remember this? I can't find those articles because Zero Hedge's search function is awful, right? So I'd love to find like chapter and verse, like the six or seven articles they wrote the entire time after Powell started to reverse course, you know, in January 2019, between then and the repo crisis of of September 2019, and saying, well, why is JP Morgan, of all people, trying to destroy the bond market? You know, and they're saying, and they're going to blow out the freaking credit spreads. They're going to blow out the money markets. And lo and behold, in September 2019, they did. But here's the gig. As Martin Armstrong pointed out to everybody, Morgan led the charge for the U.S. commercial banks, some of the U.S. commercial banks, Morgan, Goldman, the ones I named earlier, Citigroup, to stop taking as collateral European debt as repo collateral. So now, after having raised interest rates and then you know gave a few of them back and Europe was getting into trouble, they couldn't get dollars from the Fed. They couldn't get dollars from the American banks anymore because the American banks wouldn't take, you know, a German Bund at minus 8.8% as collateral for the repo. They just said, no, this war started three years ago at this point. So should I leave my money in failing European banks? Well, the US doesn't look like a credible place to put my money. And so Davos's plan has been to destroy the United States. And George Soros has made this abundantly clear that his goal is the destruction of the United States. This is the layout of the land for me. Since I started putting this together, I've just been watching it going, yeah, that that tracks, that tracks. I haven't seen any data yet that tells me that the Fed is working, still working for Davos. What I see is the exact opposite of that, that they're doing everything imaginable to try and keep the Fed from raising rates, forcing European bond yields to rise, and then forcing credit spreads to, to collapse and forcing Lagarde into the, the, into the state she's in now. Oh, we're raising rates, but we're going to do QE to eternity. Yeah. So let me ask you this for people as we kind of, because I mean, this is a complicated topic. And it is. What should people be paying attention to? Maybe let me ask you to combine that with where you think, you know, I'm not going to hold you to this, but where sure. you kind of think things are headed. What should people be watching to see these things? Because it seems like really, it's really a simple, right there. Yeah, it's a really simple thing, right? Okay. Look for discontinuous events. Friday, well, actually, let's go back to Thursday. The ECB raises rates by 50 basis points. They're technically now at zero, the zero bound or zero to minus 0.1%, right? That's their range. While at the same time saying we're going to do QE to eternity, you know, to bail out Italy if we have to. This comes a day after the Draghi government that was designed to do exactly what Powell was supposed to do, which was to subordinate the Italian government after he leaves office to the European Commission by tying a whole bunch of COVID relief debt to them that they would not be able to get off their balance sheet. They wouldn't be able to leave the European Union to get rid of because they'd be tied to the European Commission for all the money they owe them. Well, yeah, you want to leave the EU? Well, you got to pay us back the $12 billion you borrowed from us, which the Italians don't have. So, or euros that they don't have. So guess what? That's what they're going to do, right? Same way that when Draghi was at the ECB, he said, you know, okay, Matteo Salvini, you can leave the euro, but you got to pay us back all your target two liabilities, which would be in all your sovereign gold and then some, which was hundreds of billions of dollars. And same thing. Well, Draghi's no longer there. Georgia Maloney and the Brothers of Italy are going to take over in less than two, right around two months from today, which is going to be hilarious when they say, yep, yeah, and we're leaving the euro. Sit on that and spin, which is going to be phenomenal. I can't wait for it. My people. I'm Italian all the way back on the boat, both sides. Oh, so, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd never see that, right? So, and a New Yorker on top of it all. So it's like, you know, dude, like half the people can't tell whether I anglify, whether I italify my name because they think I'm Jewish. It's just hilarious. I'm like, no, I'm just from New York. Same thing. Oh, that everything. So <laughs> it's just the thing. So when you look at the situation, right, the what you should look for now is very simple. The ECB just capitulated. That means that high net worth individuals, family offices, small funds, whatever, are all looking at the situation going, this is unsustainable. Now you watch for capital flight out of Europe. It's not really difficult. And what would capital flight out of Europe look like here in the United States? It would look like a rising Dow and rising US bond yields, which is exactly what we saw on Thursday and Friday. The Dow rallied and the 10-year moved up 25 basis points. Now that also allowed Lagarde, a lot of people to front run Lagarde on the German 10-year and you know, and whatnot, and gave her some breathing room because now the the yield on a bunch of euro debt, you know, also dropped because it's all because those spreads still haven't blown out yet. Like right. between US and German debt, you you know, people are, are obsessed with inter-European bond spreads, which you should really be looking at is the difference between US and German bond spreads. Because when the when the market says it prefers US debt over German debt. That's when all of Europe collapses because the German Bund is the European equivalent, is the safe haven trade for Europe. Yeah, like that's the way I'm looking at it. And yeah, there's some Swiss franc, you know, issuance in there, and you know, you can look at those spreads as well. But I'm not. That's as far as my brain can can look at this point. I can go U.S. German bond spreads, SOFR versus one month LIBOR, right? The rate on SOFR versus one month LIBOR is, I think, also a very important one. But the big one for most people on a day to day basis, just look at the Dow. If the Dow is holding up while we move into recession. And trade sideways. Well, that's international capital flowing into the Dow. The Dow is the biggest, most liquid equity pool. You can't put it in the S and P 500. You can't put it into the Nasdaq. You got to put it into the Dow. Traditionally speaking, I mean, yeah, there would be some other sectors that people will put in. And then the same thing with U.S. debt. And so, yeah, we might get an inversion of the yield. We have gotten an inversion of the yield curve, and all sorts of weird things will happen that way. But the Fed's not worried about that. The Fed has a mission, and the mission is kill the ECB and kill the offshore dollar markets because the offshore euro dollar shadow banking system controls has always previously controlled Fed policy, which is why so many people always go, yeah, the Fed will pivot the minute they try to raise rates. But what if they aren't going to do that this time? What if they have the tools in place, the reverse repo facility, the foreign repo facility, SOFR, this, all of these things that they put in place over the last five years? What if also the Fed has said, we have to have a recession in order to save the country and the right. currency and the banking system. Which what if we have to do so many of these people are screaming and yelling and kicking their heels? I mean, it's kind of ironic, as you said, you look at this stuff and you really see, I think you said this in the beginning, which side people are on. You know, they what is it? There's a gal we listen to is kind of an insider, but she says, you know, the people start they start pulling their pants down. <laughs> what bothers me is that you've got so many people whose reputations now depend on the idea that the Fed's the bad guy. My reputation is I go where the truth is. I'm going to continue to go where the truth is. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll own it and I'll move on. And I've been asking everybody for the last 13 months since the Fed raised the reverse repo payout rate by five basis points and drained uh, $1.5 trillion worth of base money from the euro dollar system. Hey, over three months. Hey, uh, you think maybe the Fed's off the reservation? You know, it's funny, Emerson. I know Powell's not this kind of guy, but I know that if he had that when he was last summoned to the Biden White House to talk about inflation, remember this? About, yes. I don't know, about two months ago, right before the yeah. 50 basis point rate hike, mm-hmm. you know that Biden went in there and, t- and tried to talk tough to him. And Powell just looked right at him and said, you shut up. It's almost jello time. Yeah. <laughs> you don't set policy. Like this had been me. I'd been like, shut up. You. This is jello time. And then you, Obama, come over here. 
Let's talk. If you look at me sideways, it's 75 basis points. If you mock me, it's 100 on Thursday. If you don't go out there and mm. say to everybody that I'm not the greatest Fed chairman in the history of the world, it's 150 because I will break your master overnight. I don't care, which is what he should have done. But what he's doing now is just gently leading everybody up to that 4% mark and just boiling Europe in its own oil thereof, while the Russians on the other side turn up the heat and say, oh, yeah, by the way, you don't have any energy either. So, like, yeah, yeah, nah. You mentioned about seeking truth. And, you know, I was always a guy who really just ignored, you know, I was happy. I mean, my firm was doing fine. We we're building sure. assets because, you know, rates go down, everything, you know, where else are you going to put your money? Right. <clears throat> I mean, it worked for so long. Right. And But when you finally start seeking and looking and honestly, like you said, detaching from old ways of thinking, then all of a sudden the world opens up and you start to see things differently. And these yeah. events take on different meanings. And and I, I will tell you, um, on one hand, it's it's uh, it's a bit of a burden, you know, because sure. you've got clients who are all different places of politically and where they see and where they're willing to go with this. But, you know, you have I have a responsibility to try and help protect them the best they can. But at the same time, it's refreshing because I've met guys like Craner, like you, Russell Napier is another one I really yep. like over in Scott. I mean, just smart people who aren't afraid to say what they feel because they're not worried about getting cut off from some revenue stream, you know, from some big bank. You know, yep. it's so nice to talk to people who just who aren't owned. We have a, an obligation to our clients, you know, and I have about, I have a couple thousand patrons now. I have an obligation to them every day, right? So, Tom, if people want to get a hold of you, where's the best place for them to go? Best place to go is my blog over tomloango.me. There you can get links to the Patreon if you want to become a member. I have two tiers worth of service. One's $4. It's basically for the private blogs and the private market reports and also the community channel that I have and $12 a month for the newsletter, which is a retail investor style, classic retail investor newsletter with basically a stock portfolio design to kind of make it relatively easy to chart your path through all this. And then you can follow me on Twitter where I'm if you liked what you heard today, my, my Twitter feed's even spicier. And that's a TFL1728. Awesome. Um, and I will say full transparency, and that's a big thing nowadays. Uh, I'm a, a recent subscriber, and I will tell you, that's uh, just in the short time I've been a member. Excellent value. I mean, I really look forward to your material. So That's how we hooked up, actually. You sent me a private DM on yeah. Patreon. I'm like, dude, you're giving me money. Of course, I'll come on your podcast. Like, uh, I also believe in paying things forward. I remember uh, when I was just starting out, the minute I got invited onto any show whatsoever that gave me a chance, I, I was like, yeah, I, thank you. You're awesome. You're, And then I get now that my star is starting to rise a little bit, I want other people in this space. I want to give them the exposure they can as well. I mean, it's just, it's just the way, this is how you do it. This is how you build a community. I one day I was telling my wife this um, just yesterday. I'm really grateful. She's the one that turned me on to Zero Hedge. I'm really grateful because it's opened up. I do feel like I have this community and I've got people I can really listen to and learn from mm -hmm. in an industry particularly. I mean, I've been doing this since, gosh, 92. When I got my first broker license. Sure. And it's just been a lot of the same noise, noise, noise all these years. I just thought that was normal. And I just feel like now I'm in such a better place. To, to help my people that have entrusted me with their money. So God bless your family. That's what we're here for. I mean, we have to push this forward. And, you know, and it's funny, you know, I feel that same responsibility to my patrons on a day-to-day -day basis. Like it's, it's the same kind of thing. This is exactly the same process, right? You know, you want to constantly, you know, give people 
information that they can act on or that will at least de-stress them and make them and and so they can go mm-hmm. and they can start to synthesize what they're seeing so that they can then make better judgments even if all they do at the end of the day they just check in with me every week or every couple of posts or whatever and go oh yeah okay they're still saying the same thing everything's fine okay cool i can go back to running my small business you know right. cutting my grass playing with my children and getting some sleep at night because the worst thing about this is that what they're trying to do is keep us in a constant state of anxiety where we don't understand yep. what's going on and we act out of fear and we abreact out of fear. And that's the last place you want to be. You want to be settled in your idea about uh, how this is going to play out and have at least some semblance of what's going to happen and leave the real anxiety stuff that keeps you up at night leave that to me i'll figure it out and then i'll tell you and then you make your life a little easier i'll sleep at night and i'll smoke too many cigars and drink too much coffee perfect it is what it is i'm okay with it thanks so much it's been great i could talk to you all day i appreciate it emerson you be well and uh best to your clients and your family and everybody else and we'll talk soon emerson fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through lpl financial Member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.